what is my history as a black Filipino person, right? Mm-hmm. And it starts with the military. And so I was like, what is the history of black folks going into the military? And you look at these Calvaries, right, that were first segregated, but also like how black folks were recruited right. to be in the military to go to the Philippines. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshko. And each week, we sit down with cultural ambassadors to talk about how they defied societal norms to live their lives with with no no blueprint. Right now, I'm exploring who I am as as an auntie and as a person that is delving into their feelings of fear. That's my soul <laughs> and my family. That's who I am. So my soul's my soul right now is um, exploring fear. My family identity is like exploring who I am as an auntie and as a person that's not going to have kids and like how that is interpreted in the world as a 40-year-old person. When I think about racial dynamics in the United States, I'm a mixed race, queer, cisgendered, black and Filipino woman of color. When I think about the identity that brings me joy, I think about um, myself as a teacher, as a constant learner, as a person that's learning how people learn, and like that being a foundational, amazing thing that helps you explore life in a different way. Cause like, I think that is, how we can change the world is if we learn how people learn because then you understand how people understand things so that they can unlearn things or relearn things before I became like a teacher here specifically at Seattle Girls School I was a community organizer and community educator I feel like those are still like what my soul I think some people would say that's an activist, but I think everybody's an activist, right? Because if you fight for something, it depends on how you fight for something. But a community organizer is different. So I still feel like I hold on to that identity and it's hard for me to be an activist how it's defined in this world because of ability things. <laughs> that's really hard. You know, I can't be out the pounding the pavement. People are like, we need to pound the pavement. I was like, you don't know about these feet and my ankles and my hip and my back. I'm like, for real? like. As a working class, coming from a working class community, I was like, I want to survive beyond, you know, 50. You know, we're, you know, we're dying because of health concerns <laughs> from 60. There's other things, you know. So it's exciting when I'm a person that wants to live until they're 100. Um, <laughs> right. That's the goal. And so that means that I'm 40%, almost 40% done with my life. <laughs> Go by percentages, you know. Uh, got 60 more percent to live. I'm a person that's very youthful. People think, you know, I'm, I'm, I want people to think that I'm old now, you know, regardless of how I look, because I'm like, mm, I want to be an auntie and I want to be old. I want the, I want people to ask me questions because I have gray hair. I'm like, you well, let me tell you. <laughs> no, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but other than that, I'm like professionally, um, I've been a consultant. I've been a youth and young adult person. I've been a mentor. I've been an ate, which means a big sister. I've been Miss Lulu. I'm also a radio host, which is Lulu Nation. Um, I think I'm a chameleon as I'm saying all these different identities. I am who I need to be in any given moment. 
that's what my mixed experience has taught me <laughs> so that I can survive and thrive and support other people and being a conscious bridge, not one that stepped on. <laughs> I hate that metaphor. <laughs> Let's see. That's all for now. Yeah. And, you know, I have a radio show, which, you know, Lulu Nation and the crew, Tuesday, 7 to 9, currently on Hollow Earth Radio, expanding, hopefully, with your help. Um, okay. <laughs> um, nice. Anti-gentrifier, but a gentrifier. I can go on, you know. I use she and her pronouns. <laughs> Listen, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. No, this is... First of all, this is an honor to be able to sit with you. I think when I when we were formulating this podcast, your name was one of the first names that came up. And I think I was... Yeah, you told me. You know, yeah. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how yeah, to help we you. Don't I'm worry, trying to we, figure it out, too. <laughs> listen, listen, we didn't know what to do either, which is why I had to wait. I was like, let me wait until we, we halfway know what we're doing here before we sit down with you. And so, <laughs> so before I ask about culture, I want, can you, can you run down, uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you can you run down some of the organizations that your name has been attached to? There's not that many, you know that. Listen. I feel like I've supported some, but ones that I give honor to yes. that have supported me are API Women and Family Safety Center, which is now API Chaya. Shout out to API Chaya. Yep, API stands for Asian Pacific Islander. Um, they uh, taught me how about sexual assault, domestic violence, and sexual. A, a sexual assault, um, sexual violence, and sexual trafficking, mm. um, international and domestic. Um, and that was foundational because then I learned about grassroots organizing, nonprofits, and also policy as well as community partnership. And that is the foundation. What is now called Gabriella Seattle, mm. it's gone through different variations, but it's predominantly a Filipino women's organization, which taught me about uh, community organizing and grassroots. Um, leadership and specifically international solidarity mm -hmm. in connection to Bayan USA. After that, it was like Communities Against Rape and Abuse, which is connected, was which was an affiliate chapter of Insight, Women and Trans People Against Violence. And that taught me about like critical resistance and incarceration and like basically the complicated things that we need to go through and what does community accountability mean? What does transformative justice mean? So that we can't, we're like, it's called carceral feminism, which the answer to all of, to justice is locking people up versus like, what does justice look like? I think that's more complicated. And then that was big. Also, Ladies First was under that. It was a project. Um, we did Nat Turner teach-ins through CARA. They, the women that started that organization taught me a lot about rape and rape culture. Other than that, I think everything has been like contracts. Everything has been contracts and contracts and contracts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> So it's like my name is attached to all these other things, but I'm like mostly it's like people paid me and so I did work for them. <laughs> Listen, and I love them all, but I feel like those were the foundations mm -hmm. of like helped my analysis of like why I understood my family in connection to violence and what I understood liber liberation to mean mm -hmm. and how hard it was. Right. Besides that, I learned a lot about preservation and anti-gentrification through organizations like 
Lilo that helped me get to Legacy of Equality and Labor Organizing, mm-hmm. which was connected to tons of organizations that helped me get to the United States social forums when they first came out, like in Atlanta, and then later in Detroit. Also helped me get to like Allied Media Conference and understand what media justice meant. And that was another framing of even why, you know, radio is so important. Mm-hmm. When I think of youth organizations that I supported, I think that's your list where I've definitely like mentored and been big sister slash Ate, you know, in Filipino Tagalog language, which is like the service board, Seattle Young People's Project, not really youth in doing re- institutional racism, but I would always send youth there. I worked at Franklin High School as a community projects manager. I worked at Youth Care through many of their programs, mostly the drop-in and like outreach, um, transitional programming, worked on call at sometimes, you know, that 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. <laughs> you know, pick up a little change, talk to some youth. Yeah, I think that's all the youth organizations. Did I say Youth Speaks in Seattle Young People's Project? Um, The Service Board, which was huge. TSB. The TSB, a huge influence for me. And just framing and understanding. And a lot of youth organizations have asked me to do different workshops, from Powerful Voices to All Girl, Everything, Age Up, Ultimate Frisbee. Oh, I've done contracts with Roots Young Adult Shelter. Yeah, I think that's it. And then did a lot of speaking engagements at tons of colleges and universities. Wow. Yes, I'm like looking up to the sky of like, God, can you help me? Did I forget anything? Yeah. Did I might Did I tell you that I was old again? <laughs> it's been a, I've got a million. Now I've got, I've, got, I've got a million questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> I like how you started with, oh, there's not a lot. I don't yeah, need a lot. Yeah, and yeah. that was a lot. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. no, no. The foundational this, ones the, well, and the, the ones that helped me support youth and young adults. But this is, <laughs> this is great. But, yeah. but, no, this is great because this is why we do it, right? <laughs> so how do you come, how do you personally come to understand culture? So the first time I started to um, define culture is through KP who's also known as Rogue Panay in the artist scene. They're a rapper, an entrepreneur, community activist, community organizer, and they were active in Gabriela, Gabriela, Seattle, as well as Bayan and other organizations in the Filipino community, and API Chaya, as mentioned earlier. And they went to the Philippines and they came back and they identified themselves as a cultural worker and they defined it as people have done for centuries there where a cultural worker is somebody who shifts culture because in order to combat like imperialism in order to combat like racism and all types of oppression that cause violence is like we created that culture you know so we created a culture of violence we can created a culture of rape we created a culture of harm and so Art is a vehicle in which we can shift meaning, right? And so for me, culture is something that we create together. It's not just a given. There's things that are handed down to us. We see it historically. We can either reclaim that culture so that we can continue, but they're all vehicles so that we can find liberation together. Things that are culture is like language, you know, um, an example of language being violent is like how people are forced to assimilate 
and learn a specific language, you know, specifically English. You know, we're just very monolingual here in the United States. And to give up their mother tongue, which had their cultural understanding, you know, and most language is rooted in land. If you go to a specific country where it's just like things are grounded, things have meaning, a lot of words have story versus the English language, which is predominantly a trade language, which I love talking about, you know, could go more in depth and specifically how that could be a violent encounter. And instead, if we take language through poetry or through art, we can shift that paradigm of saying like that which is used to conquer me or make me feel less than because I don't know grammar or sentence structure, I'll actually use to to bring liberation to my people through poetry and, and upliftment. You know, that's an example. Or images that are used to, or visuals that are used to say we are conquerors, for example, or statues. So you go around or and street names are named after that the native folks or indigenous folks that are seen as no longer here or vanishing and like how that's a colonizing force or like if we name like or there's just statues of predominantly white cisgendered men and that tells a story right that's a culture of dominance around us but it was like can we raise up different statues can we create different visuals and when i think about culture specifically when we think about those that are most marginalized all we have is our bodies so when we think about fashion whether it's our nails or our hair or the clothing that we wear or the swag in which we carry our body and we only have our body that is our culture that we're wearing so that we can advertise we're like watching we're like living breathing statues walking around juxtaposed to this environment of culture you know so when i think about cultural shifting it's like with our mouths with our bodies because often those are the only things that we're left with when we're like migrating from one country to another or when we think about slavery right it was just like you can take everything away from me but i'm a living breathing person with (laughs) you know with my body and i'm carrying my culture with me you know my mother tongue you know my body you know that's amazing yeah I have more to say about that, but I'm sorry. I just got on a Listen, train. I was like, no, and I was doing, was... I was going Paulo first. I was like, Shh. I was like, oh wait, wait, I have to come back and say this thing. <laughs> oh, I need to come back and say this thing. <laughs> Being educated all day, right? Um, <laughs> what are the, and, and it, so, so I want to start. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah, can we start with like where, did, where like where were you born? Where did you grow up? Day one. Day one. From the beginning. I I was like, I thought this was going to be a hard question, and it usually is, because I saw a twinkle in your eye. I was like, "Mm." hmm. Because you're like, I can only see your eyes, and you're like, (laughs) so (laughs) tell me. (laughs) And I thought I was like, "Uh oh, hard question. (laughs) Oh, baby status. Okay. I was born as a Pisces. My birthday's March 10th, 1978. Please meet me at the Bush Gardens um, for my usual if they're still in existence by then. My dad's from Jacksonville, Alabama. My mom's from Pampanga, Philippines, specifically Mexico City in the Philippines, not in Mexico. Yes, there's a Mexico City. Yes, I'm the uh, the Spaniards colonized the Philippines as well as Mexico. So, 
I need to look up the history on that. That's. I, I feel like I'm throwing things in that distract me. So I'll, let me backtrack. So my dad's uh, in Jacksonville, Alabama. He's African American. He has some Native blood inside of him. We just learned about this. Just mentioning that because people from the South are like, "Oh, he's a little bit light skin," you know. <laughs> and it's kind of like. You're like, oh, you know, it's so interesting depending yeah. on what region you're in, what what's considered light skin Bless to the black folks. So uh, he was raised on a cotton plantation wow. with his brothers and sisters. All the brothers, um, all my uncles predominantly went into the military. All my aunties kind of stayed at home, um, ended up being in that area. There was a Walmart. Um, there was some, there was a prison nearby. Um, it's a really tiny town, and there's lots of cotton plantations. Wow. Um, so my dad's um, was the last generation to pick cotton. He did that in high school. That formed my identity a lot. And then he went into the military. The, mi- the military base is now shut down. Okay. And so then he went from there. Um, he met my mom um, and revealing family secrets. She was pregnant at the time, I learned. That's how my family rolls. Like, that's why I love stories. Like, it's so important because your families hide so much trauma because they think it's better for you and it's worse. So, um, (laughs) um, my brother was born. And so he was the first of four kids. They were married in a courthouse somewhere. They had all three kids, Don, Michelle, and Junior. And then I guess I was a little seedling inside my mom's tummy when she was migrating to the United States. Then my, uh, then I was born in Mountain Home, Idaho, Air Force Base. So, yeah. I was like in Idaho on a military base as a mixed girl. <laughs> my brother has tons of stories that also form. Um, you know those stories that your family tells you that you look back now and they're like, that's kind of tragic, you know? Like, yeah. tell me stories in family gatherings. That's not cool. Like, oh yeah, you know, your oldest brother was called the N-word and, like, came home and we thought it was so funny. He was, like, he wanted to be white because um, um, he couldn't speak English, too, right? So mm-hmm. he wanted to drink milk because someone told him that if he drank milk, he would be white. Wow. And, like, if you see those commercials back then, it was, like, subconsciously that's what they were saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was, like, and it affected him as a young person. I remember hearing those stories. Another story was like that I fell off of the bed and I was like, really? And that I was almost taken away because they thought abuse was happening in my house. And I was like, oh, little did they know that it was not physical abuse, but it was verbal abuse in different ways. (laughs) We'll leave that story there for later. (laughs) Um, And we moved when I was like three, between the ages of three or five, I can't recall, but moved to Florida and that was like all I remember is sandy beaches. So... Like that was half my life was my memory of Florida and just swimming, you know, um, and being a young girl. And then around the 1990, we moved to Spokane. So that was like middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. Tried as hard as possible to go anywhere in the country, but for some reason the pool of family. And I ended up going to WSU, go Cougs. Stayed there and from being in a military background, I was like, I was kind of, ooh, I hated moving. Um, I forgot to say, like, in Florida, I lived in, we lived in two different places. So, and between Florida and going to Spokane, we lived in a motel for a reason. I don't even recall, like, why we live in a motel for so dang long in Airway Heights. (laughs) 
but it was like realized that we we're semi-homeless and i didn't realize until later like when you're working with homeless folks you're like oh these are the moments that i was homeless but as a person of color you never see yourself as homeless mm-hmm. because you're taken in in some ways mm-hmm. or you feel taken care of at least for me so fast forward wsu is a rural rural town for folks that don't know that and pullman washington learned a lot about agriculture and and different things and that formed my identity and then we fast forwarded to like tons of, I knew tons of people at WSU. That a lot of people at WSU were folks of color that came from Seattle because they wanted their families to get away. And so one of the biggest things of recruiting people to WSU from urban areas was like getting away from large families, mm-hmm. especially folks that were immigrants of like, because your responsibility was like taking care of your family versus educating yourself. Mm-hmm. And then they would bring their younger siblings there. It's like, okay, we'll continue this taking care of, but in an, you know, like we're focusing on academics versus feeding families. Another thing was like getting away from, from violence, you know, or being influenced in that way. And so it was interesting community at WSU, especially because during that time, ethnic studies was booming. I learned so much at ethnic, ethnic studies and I got politicized in a very rural area. Um, learned a lot about like gay bashing, learned a lot about <laughs> black people being beat up, which is mob mentality, which is very scary to like Colfax, which is 30 minutes away, which was like in the 1970s was like the first, the last, sorry, the last time a black person was hung in the state of Washington. So that kind of formed my identity and then coming fast forward. Plus like when I was in high school in Spokane was, um, there was like cross burnings. I remember on mixed race like lawns to like the Ku Klux Klan, not the Ku Klux Klan, but like Aryan nation folks trying to march in Coeur d'Alene, mm. which is 30 minutes away. So like it was like in the back of my head and like sharing stories with people that are from Eastern Washington in that area of like, you know, the Klan is not that far away. The Aryan nation is not that far away. People think that's a very Southern thing, mm. but it's just outside the borders of Seattle. And that was my experience in middle school and high school of like, you know, running into skinheads, you know, right. like normal things and just be safe and just be chill. And then coming to Seattle, which was a very different experience of like, it was my first urban experience. Mm. And my both, both of my parents are real country. And <laughs> and here I am, and you heard all the things that I did earlier yeah. <laughs> on the list. So you moved with your family to Seattle? No, I moved oh. by myself. I had two suitcases, and I was just like, got a job in AmeriCorps, which is like, man, that's not in existence anymore. And that was like, what that was was life-changing in many ways. Um, what it stood for, there was many critiques of it. But it was like an entryway into a nonprofit world, right? Yeah. Um, and building that industry. So um, I got a job at Edmonds Community College. I did. I thought Edmonds was in Seattle, and they were confusing me. I was like, oh, and so I would take the bus for like an hour to come to Seattle to organize. I don't know if I would do that anymore. My commute, <laughs> my commute right now is like five minutes. <laughs> Nice. doing things you know <laughs> you know but you know the central district in seattle is becoming very gentrified but before i was like taking the bus like an hour to like an hour one way to go to work at Edmonds, and, and it felt like an hour the other way to like organize after work wow yeah yeah wow so many parallels i want to go all the way back to, to <laughs> what year Mm. What year did your father join the military? Because you said he was part of the mm. last wave of folks who, who picked cotton, which is, mm-hmm. wow. 
So I was born in 78. So we'd have to subtract a little bit. <laughs> but it was in high school, so he was really young. So it, it was in the 1970s. Wow. And, that's, and it's interesting. Because like, the cotton industry is still there. Yeah. So I apologize. You can edit all that out. But yeah, my dad. Um, so I was born in 1978. So that means that it must have been 1960s or 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that there's... Cotton, cotton cotton plantations. Yeah. I call them cotton plantations, but people just farms. cotton farms. Yeah. yeah. So my yeah. so people wonder where your cotton comes from. You need to go do your research. Right. right. So my so yeah. my my parents grew up um, in Alexandria, Louisiana, in the middle mm-hmm. of Louisiana, and my father grew up in a neighborhood called the Red Mill Oil Mill Quarters, and mm-hmm. it was called the Oil Mill Quarters because it was an oil mill, mm-hmm. and there was a similar to your father in Alabama there was a military base that was there Mm -hmm. and once the military base closed once the cotton uh, once the oil mill closed Mm -hmm. the city lost a a lot of its jobs Mm -hmm. and so that turned into high poverty Mm -hmm. very African American neighborhood Mm -hmm. other side of the tracks type of situation where other side of the tracks is where white folk lived Mm -hmm. and then this side of the track is where black folk live and it was a sundown town um back in the day so yeah interesting and you mean by sundown town is you needed to be back in that town by sundown yep you yep in your place yep Mm -hmm. yep or bad things happen yeah Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and so but it goes back. That's a to, story that you need to tell, right, dear God? Because like yeah. that's interesting. Because like now people are like, oh, you're making so much of a fuss about Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. but I'm like the only difference between now and a few few years ago yeah. was the only thing is that we're talking about it in media platforms, right? right. But it was happening, right. right? Right. And nobody just you just oh they killed somebody. You're not gonna go and go to the cops because they're probably in on it. You know, right. like right. Right. exactly. You're just like it, just chilling. Yeah. Nah, my mind's blown, kind of. <laughs> what I was going to mention about my m- the cotton plantation is it's interesting being in the Northwest and families that are rooted here. Mm-hmm. But if you go down South, like, it's just normal. And I remember going to an event um, um, by C. Davida Ingram, mm-hmm. and people were crying, touching cotton. And I was just like, the last time I touched cotton, you know, because it was in my childhood, because we'd visit mostly most summers, mm-hmm. is my grandma's funeral. And I remember going to the cotton field, grabbing cotton, and it's still on my altar today. Is like I just knew what cotton felt like, and there's something sacred about something that comes from the earth, but then caused so much like tragedy. Mm-hmm. One thing that's there now is if you call any cell phone, like you call the helpline, or usually it's somebody from a considered a developing or a third world country. So you'll hear people from India, yeah. from the Philippines, mm-hmm. but also you'll hear people with accents that are distinguished like linguistically as African-American. Mm-hmm. That's mostly from Southern town. So where the military left is the industry mm-hmm. of technology, specifically cell phones, specifically T-Mobile, <laughs> you know, or yeah. um, I would have to do more research, but I was like, interesting. And like every time I call my cell phone, I was like, I get somebody from the Philippines or somebody from the South, mm-hmm. you know, and wondering where those industries have moved, you know, where poverty is, right? right, right. Um, and oftentimes people make fun, like comedians will make fun of like getting somebody online and not being able to talk to them. But mostly that's, you know, developing our third world countries. And now you start thinking about like, oh, 
where are our developing regions in the United States? We act as if the third world is out there when it's actually here in the belly of the beast in the United States. Interesting. I noticed that and I always thought it was because of a, a time difference thing. I don't know why I was associated with that. Not necessarily like outsourcing to India or the Philippines. That I figured it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so companies do that. But whenever it was someone with a southern accent, I thought, oh, okay, must be time difference. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I never mm-hmm. thought about it that way. Yeah. John Ekloff, we were talking to about the number of African American folks who came north to the Northwest specifically through the military. Yeah. Right? Because uh, like your family, mm-hmm. all of my family members on my father's side had some connection to the military. Mm-hmm. And that was how do we get out of the South. Alexandria, Louisiana and the Jim Crow South. And so that even that is even that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And so how long were how long was your family in the military? Mm. My dad got out in the 90s, but it was complicated. He didn't make rank Mm -hmm. somehow, and I didn't understand it. He's a janitor now, Mm -hmm. so he gets some benefits, but it's not a lot, Mm -hmm. right? So some people think when you think Air Force, it depends on the branch, but there's like he was more like a foot soldier. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people in the military that do odd jobs that need to be done, and my dad didn't you know he doesn't you know he doesn't have this like large check that comes in every single month from the military he he gets veterans um benefits you know in regards to health benefits for him and and my mother but it's not like a lot you know and i think he's kind of lucky that way because my mother has a lot of health things going on um and her insurance because she worked at a casino so like thinking about their story and connection to me of like where I'm at, you know, those, that whole um, understanding of like class of like, do you work with your muscles or do you work with your mind or do you work with your fingers? Like what body part is is being strained? Both of them are like their bodies are like aching, Mm -hmm. but they're still working. Mm -hmm. My mom has had to quit because, you know, a couple of her toes got (laughs) severed and she has, you know, she has diabetes and, you know, heart you know like she's like only in her 50s and she has like heart conditions her kidneys are failing like all this stuff you know um you know her body is like shutting down Mm -hmm. and her coming from a rural area as well so she came from like rice fields Mm -hmm. like so when i i didn't realize that until i went to go visit the philippines and so walking down the road and she's just like oh yeah the rice is just put on the road where it's kind of a natural air dryer you know there's these mats and then you put the rice on top and i'm like walking through Mexico City and Angeles, you know, and kind of like Los Angeles, right? Mm. But it's called Angeles City. You'll just see like lots of rice fields. So I'm like, here's my mother with rice fields and my dad with cotton fields and like two rural kids meet in the Philippines on an Air Force base, like, of course. And she was like a maid. And like many years later, it's like she's still, she thinks that she's coming to the United States where life is gonna be different, but also like she's marrying this American man and like he was not the prize, right? So the prize is to marry predominantly white men. Mm. So she was not treated well by Filipino people because she married a black man and like her kids looked a certain way. Even when I went back to the Philippines, people would look at my skin 
and they knew my brother, my older brother, because they both they all spoke Tagalog before they left, but none of us speak Tagalog anymore. And they looked at my skin. They're like, "Oh, it's a good thing that you're like not dark like your brother," and all these other mm-hmm. things of like that colorism mm-hmm. carrying on in all cultures. And fast forward to like just like looking at our bodies and how they're used and like what a success looks like, you know, going from from there and visiting there. They're still seen as more successful because my dad's a janitor. You know, we still have more money here in the United States, even though we're struggling. So we're like low income here. But I'm like, my parents are like, my dad's a janitor and he also drives a truck for a news outlet, Spokane news outlet. And my mother was working at the casino. So we went back to rural life because like Airway Heights is right by Spokane. Mm. And that's where the military base is. Once again, (laughs) the military bases are so marked or small rural towns or developing countries are marked with this, right? So you have a Walmart, we have a casino. What up natives? What up indigenous folks? And then we have a military base, right? right? And then there's a prison that was built. So that's all Airway Heights is. And that's how people get their get their money right get their money you know like i don't have no shame about that but just like you know what they do for economic work yeah Mm. that's interesting and i i would be remiss and i i don't know why that this just clicked in my head my cousin is half filipino but has never met her mother and so Mm. they came over i want to say she was born early 90s and so Mm. she was raised by my grandmother in alexandria louisiana and so she has no connection well Mm. i assume Mm. that she has no connection to filipino culture because Mm. she grew up in this very small rural town in louisiana Mm. uh you'd be surprised about where filipinos end up in the diaspora (laughs) right and so i i'm i'm I'm, i will definitely make sure that i I directly send this episode to her because Mm. yeah and it's that's that's interesting because that just is in the history of like Amerasians. Yeah. So like there's an Amerasia organization. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, no. but it was like there's some acts that you have to look up. I was doing this when I was doing my studies for a master's and I completely forgot. I was like blown away about um, international babies. Right. Mm-hmm. So by mi- military men. Mm-hmm. And there was this act where people that were born and you could actually tell that they were like either half white or half or part black with Asian where they could claim, you know, American ancestry. And that was like almost like reparations in some ways of like because these kids were being harmed because mm-hmm. this is where conquering happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those kids were not treated well in some countries and with compassion in other countries, you know, depending on how you see things, we'd have to pick up those stories. Yeah. But they were uh, allowed to advocate for their citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so there's tons of babies that are left all over the world by Mm. military men that they know that like these are not our our kids, which is a more monolithic culture. Right. right? Um, I don't know if that act is still in place, but I mean, the whole idea of me becoming like anti-military and anti-imperialist is from a very concrete personal experience of like seeing what happens to Filipino women in working in mess halls on military bases. And it's just so weird how the conquered become absorbed inside of, you know, when we think about U.S. militarization harming the Philippines and me being in between that and like, what does the military mean for my family? 
you know, and like black people being recruited into military. And one thing I told some youth the other day was there is, I remember this article coming out where there was this crisis in the military because too many black men were being educated. Mm. And so they were being recruited into higher education and how that disrupt an industry, the military industrial complex. And we need to like look at that, right? Of like, oh, our recruitment base within the black community, specifically black men, is like, and your choice as, you know, and when I see my father, it's like he made that choice, right? You either go into the military, you know, you go into sports, you know, that's the way out, or you're incarcerated, right? right. There was like, there's like these tracks that people were dragged into. And now that there's more opportunities, there's like this crisis of like, what's going to fuel our economy? Because like mm. the prison class fuels our economy. The military fuels our economy. Right. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a Damn. Yeah. I went to a high school where, you know, nowadays our college recruiters will come out and they're like, apply to our school, whatever. But I went to Cleveland and mm. we had none of that. No college recruiters would come out. It was mm. all military. Mm. And they'd call us. Yeah. They even called me several mm. times. I'm like, I don't want to join. I don't, I'm getting, no. Is this after the steam came in there? Is this? No, this was prior. Prior this to prior, this, Yeah. Prior That's to the only type of recruiting that, because they said <laughs> most of the students at the high school, they either dropped out or you know graduated but just went to into the working world or they joined the military like the percentage that actually enrolled and went to college was very low and so that's why we had all just military recruiters coming through i mean just to backtrack a little bit like during this time of gentrification and the white flight back in but the one of the original white flights out i mean was in regards to the gi bill right and still, like, even if people were not formally incarcerated, but back in the day, you know, getting this GI Bill, people that were African-American were still shut out of that and people advocating for that right. There's a history of African-American and black soldiers, you know, from the Buffalo Soldiers, who, which was given, like, the status by um, indigenous people, like, because the way that they fought because the wool of people's hair mm. and people think that was a derogatory term but it was like indigenous people were like saying we honor the way that black people fight right and this is the buffalo soldier um so from that moment there's always been this fight of like if i fight now will i be an american and people coming out of slavery right. from that moment right. if we talk about black people we're, we're recruited into the army and treated bad racially right i look back of like what is my history as a black filipino person right mm -hmm. and it starts with the military and so i was like what is the history of black folks going into the military and you look at these calvaries right that were first segregated but also like how black folks were recruited right. to be in the military to go to the philippines specifically because right. um, the philippines was one of the first tropical places it was um, the philippines puerto rico and some other pacific islands and they talked about black people's physicality and like their bodies and like oh they're used to working out in the suns mm -hmm. in cotton plantations in a certain way and like they can withstand the heat in a certain way they're originally from africa let's send them to the philippines because we're losing here and wow. they won't die here right wow. um and that led me down another road where i started thinking about in the philippines where there's um General Fagan, pe more people know about him, but when I first found out about him, he was a general in the Filipino army. So he was recruited as a soldier and became a general in the Filipino army where like 20 plus black soldiers um, 
defected and went into the Filipino army because the Filipinos were like, yo, my brother, my they were like my black brother. I think it was like my Negro brother because that was like the term back then of saying like, please come and fight with us. Like you are not free mm-hmm. in the United States, you know? And there is no guarantee that you're going to be free. And so they're like, come come fight with us because our struggles is like yours. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like, looking at those doc, you know, those documents of, like, Ida B. Wells, who people think was mm-hmm. only an anti-lynch person, but she was also an anti-imperialist, al- along with, like, Mark Twain, um, who, you know, people famously know as a writer, but they don't see his stuff that he wrote about the Philippines. You need know, to go deeper. Like, they were saying, no, you should stop, you know, trying to conquer other places when there's a Negro problem here in the United States. And then there was another voice within media, right? We're talking about media outlets, right. news news articles saying like, um, we can't link every single black struggle to every other brown person around the world. So you have like powerful Ida B. Wells saying like, don't do this. And other people saying like, okay, we're black folks, you know, and like that struggle still carries on today where it's like, can black people just do for black people or should black people be in solidarity because what people have done to black people, they carried over and they exported that starting with the Philippines, starting with Puerto Rico. And that was their, that was their model of like how they could colonize other countries. It was like, look how we colonize these black folks to work for us. Can we go over, export that to overseas? You know, so damn. That's all I have to say. Get <laughs> <laughs> it. Like, damn. That's so deep. I don't even know how to go back. Um, I don't. I don't either. So, so sorry, when, this is just on my mind all the time because I'm like, I come from. You know, when you said yeah. I, we come, I come from a military family. Like yeah. these are the things that are on my mind yeah. as a mixed race person. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Some other people talk about being like I'm part white and this and that. I was like, that's not my experience. I'm like, I needn't you know, meet other black and Filipino people and like share the story of like, what does it mean to be part of two, two people that are historically have been conquered or colonized, Right. Right. you know? So when you came, when you came to Seattle, Mm -hmm. you, where were you as far as like, just your, your thought process and did you know what you wanted to do? Like, what cultures were you surrounded by? Um, did you go through any culture shock? When I was leaving WSU, um, I had, when I was a senior, before I got my master's, I was like, I'm leaving, I need a network. And so one of the organizations I joined was Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I had to lift my shoulder there, incorporated, um, you know, <laughs> the red and the white, um, the triangle, the tried and true, 1913, shout out to, <laughs> I have to it's do a real. shout out, sorry, I was like, uh, what up bros, what up Soros, you know, spring 2000, Zaisai, core chapter, seven, seven images of a new era, so that was me, I was number five on the line, came to Seattle and I was, I was, I knew black folks, and then I was like part of the Filipino American Student Association. Shout out to and, FASA. Yep, FASA, and Sigu Sigu FASA. And it was like the Northwest Filipino American Student Association was like tearing things up. So I knew people from different places. So I came here and I was already embedded in culture and I had already gone to like 
different workshops in regards to Filipino resistance. Mm. And so that was on the buildup. This was before Bayan USA was Bayan USA and Bayan Northwest. So people were working in solidarity. I had just gone on an exposure trip to the Philippines um, in like 2005. I can't remember, 2004. Uh, and I had graduated in 2005. So um, an exposure trip is like when you go and you're integrated into a community and like learn about language and culture and resistance. So come here and I'm like, I had just finished my master's too, of like talking about all those things that I talked about. I was like discovering all these new things about my heritage and identity and what it meant to be me as a Filipino black person. So... Most of the work I've always done has been solidarity work or community partnerships if it's in the nonprofit world. So I like jumped in and was like always thinking about what does it mean to bring artists, for example, into educational conversations at Edmonds Community College? Like, what does it mean to have community partners in an academic institution where and that um, close that gap of like where does the community start and the academic institution begin and starting like hip-hop shows but having tablers there something that I did you know people didn't do that back in the day as much you know we, st we started doing that um, through Ladies First and other organizations just building on the knowledge that I already had and like was hungry for knowledge of like I had this book knowledge in my head and then people were on the ground and they like added and by the way incarceration is messed up and I was like what and you know so I was like meeting folks from Cara and like um at the time um I'm trying to recall the organization Home Alive I was like just met from people from Home Alive I, I jumped into a project called Queer People of Color Liberation Project, which I forgot to mention earlier, where I'm like, I discovered that I was like, oh, um, I was like, my identity was so hard. I was just like, just trying to survive. And I was actually a good Christian girl until I, I always, you know, term that in quotations. But um, I discovered that I was queer person. I was like, oh, and it was just wasn't safe for me to be that in a rural area. And I had suppressed that deep inside. So things were just exploding for me in like 2005 and I was just hungry, right? Mm -hmm. I was hungry to build. I was hungry for knowledge. And over the years, I learned that that was, I was like one of those eager beaver people. And I totally look around me now and I see people coming out of the college, out of college and asking me questions about what does this mean? What does this mean? Or just asking me about different history here in Seattle. Cause I'm like, I dig deep, you know, I'm like, I came here when I was in college to like just visiting with friends and I was like, it doesn't look like it used to look, you know, mm. I came here for like black festivals and black parades. I remember being in Delta and like strolling down the street, you know, with my out, you know, you know, flaring my red and white and black and, and we were, there's surrounded by black folks, mm -hmm. right? The streets were surrounded. I remember and I was like, this is so much joy being surrounded by blackness. Mm. And now, like, coming back to Seattle, it was, like, in 2005, it was just, like, gentrification had started to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, people were talking about the light rail. People were talking about the Filipino Community Center and fighting for it to be there so that the light rail didn't go, be, you know, in the middle of it so yeah. that there was a station right there. And, you know, um, just came came in swinging i guess like right. like muhammad ali right you know i don't know <laughs> you know building on some knowledge and i was like 
I had just read books too about like um, you know Carlos Belusan. This is before mm. the cent- uh, the centennial mm. was here. Now it's like a known thing, but I'm like before like we had just started reading people talk about the filipino renaissance and like isang mahal being on the build-up this isang mahal was like the organization that jump-started you speaks which people don't even know right Right, right. don't even know that history of like where that came from and i'm sitting here like reading this book like home is where the heart is and i'm like oh you look up and that's the street where carlos blueson was chilling that's the hotel really you know this is before his mural was everywhere you know his face was everywhere and i'm like you just read a book and you're like oh you know you know just reading i came from college just having met like octavia butler i'm like oh octavia butler is over here oh bruce lee's gravesite over here and i was like wow seattle and like meeting people that didn't even know the history of their own town you know i'm like looking at it with fresh eyes or meeting elders or people like you should meet this person so you could get some knowledge go to life enrichment books or you meet vicky at festivals where she's dragging and you know shout out and may she rest in peace of like she's dragging her books to different festivals saying like yes read this little sister you know Mm. yeah just amazingness you know (laughs) well and and i'm 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 glad you bring this up like we were we were just podcasting Mm -hmm. and thinking about like Yes, Seattle is a super white city and has been a super white city for a while, but there's so much mm-hmm. great history when it comes to talking about folks of color in this city. Yes. And there's so many amazing folks that have come through the city and mm-hmm. changed, like, mm-hmm. just changed it, like, for the better and just built and innovated on everything that was here. And yeah. so when I think about even just the Central District, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what Seattle would be without the Central District and the innovations that the Central yeah, District jazz. brought. Yeah, jazz, hello. And that's before we start talking about the South End and all of those communities and the mm-hmm. Japanese community that has been on Beacon for quite some time. And mm-hmm. so it's... Oh, even the story of jazz yeah. and the whole nation, right? right? Because Seattle was an integrated, not really legally, but was into, it was like people turned, turned the other way when yeah. people were, you know, in clubs, right. m- mixing socially, right? right? When we look at early days of like people, even interracial marriage, it was between folks of color, right? right. So we have the Indopino, like indigenous folks and Filipinos. We have Mexicans and Filipinos. Everybody in Filipinos, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but even that history of like people started talking about mixed race later but I'm like that was like way back in the jazz days yeah. you know there's Chinese black folks yeah. back in the day yeah. like because Chinese folks were doing jazz right and that influenced the whole nation in regards to jazz you know and that influenced the whole world in regards to jazz and that started here or just the history of like sex workers being unionized right, right? like our, our foundation of Seattle is based on what people said were seamstress. I don't know if you know right. this. Mm-hmm. And they were actually, and people mm-hmm. say it as a joke on the underground tour, but I'm like, that's some economic power when we talk about who sex workers were. Right. You know, and they're like, okay, we'll give you a little bit of change and we'll loan you out some money so your little city, colonized city, will still run. Or the history of tribalism of like, there's still tribes that are intact trying to fight for recognition and what does that mean for 
500 plus indigenous nations of this land you know seattle's bomb like sometimes when people are like oh seattle's whack i'm like you're not digging deep enough like when i came here i feel like it was right before the big tech boom and i was like i got to see the beauty of the city and so it hurts my heart when people come in and they're like Ooh, where are all the black people? I'm like, the black people are, I'm like, because you're here. You know, like, you can afford to move here to Seattle and reap this benefit of culture, and the people that created it are now gentrified. You know, I'm like, where do we go? Like, dig deeper, learn the history, know the beauty, like, make the connections, like, know the people that we're trying to build solidarity amongst people you know and it's not just the dudes right i'm like shout out to uncle bob i love uncle bob and and you know the gang of four shout out to auntie dorothy yeah auntie dorothy but like auntie dorothy for example was holding down cindy domingo you know and shout out to her black filipino kids (laughs) you know you know the black panthers and you know the the Charlene Williams. Yeah, the Philippine. I forgot. Why am I forgetting? I feel bad. I feel the Filipino um, um, Socialist Party. It was mm. not. That's not the official name, but it was like they're on a socialist bent. You know, they were, you know, causing ruckus. Yeah. You know, and you know, um, I'm like forgetting all the uncles now. Mm. <laughs> Larry. You know, mm. Gary Owens. You know, being raised in the international district. You know, people yeah. like used to walk down. You know, like. People, it was they were right next to each other. People yeah. were like talking to each other. Like yeah. here's here's you know the international district. Here's Chinatown. Here's Little Saigon. Here's right. here's you know Queer Hill. Here's here's um you know the black community. We're smushed up against each other, and people influenced each other. Yes, and they were yes, talking. Yes. You know, creating culture as we said earlier. Yeah. They're creating culture with music, yes. with language, with you know food. You and know, shout out to all of. The jazz musicians that mm. were that come from this city, like mm. all the folks that play jazz, and, and for that reason, like even we were talking about an episode, like just the Washington Middle School, Garfield mm. High School, and their mm-hmm. jazz programs. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen without the history of jazz mm-hmm. that was in this city and the history of hip hop that right. was born out of that. Right, 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 right. On those same jazz on Jackson Streets, absolutely. You yeah. know. Yeah. And people like people in 206 Zulu and other places will tell you that hip hop, you know, if you look at Cool Out TV, mm-hmm. like that was another circuit. Like people are mm-hmm. like, who was listening to hip hop? Right. And and Seattle having a specific flavor and sound, you know, mm-hmm. that Macklemore is like banking on right now. But mm-hmm. you need to talk to like folks like A-Sun or Santonio, you know, Santonio Bandanas and, and Julie C and folks from Alpha P. They'll tell you what that those roots are or like Jason Black and, yep. you know, um, Jace. you know, um, you know, Felicia Loud, you know, she's speaking about jazz, you know, yes. these yes. I mean, like. When I think about coming to Seattle, these are the folks that influenced me, right? Like, here's, here though, I was like looking at, here I am at Ladies First, like trying to get this conversation about rape started in the city of Seattle that I don't know that well, and like getting um, influenced by Theron and other, um, and Ebony and other, and, and Sandra you know, who was big in like the burlesque scene, right? And like mm. them like molding me, like 
talking about positive sex, you know, like respecting sex workers, mm. understanding rape culture, and then them like shooting me off with this project of like learning about hip hop and using hip hop as a vehicle in which to not say that rape, you know, saying that hip hop or rap causes rape, you know, because that was that stigma on mm. black folks um, versus like this is the conversation we need to have within hip hop and using hip hop as a vehicle, you know, and people being on stages. Um, you know, seeking out and listening to, you know, Silent Lambs project, um, mm. and other folks. And, like, it was just such a different time. And yeah. I felt like I was, like, navigating through all these communities, yeah. you know, and I still do. But, you know, sitting here and reflecting with you all, I'm like, whoa, that I forgot that that happened, you mm. know. And it was like I did feel alive, you know. Yeah. I felt like like people were wonderful and possible. Right. Because Seattle was great because you – learn from people that were in Seattle mm -hmm. that love Seattle right and they loved it so much that they were they would tell you the truth yeah. about yourself <laughs> in their city yeah. you know yeah. um yeah. you know even have to shout out to like you know you know Gabriel Teodros cuz he um taught me a lot about you know hip hop yeah especially specifically in the city of Seattle you know yeah wow that's so it's such a wild <laughs> ride here. Where do you feel like you found your mm -hmm. voice? Or did you always feel like you had it? Oh, that's a good question because I'm like trying to teach other people. You know, it's through youth and young adults, right? Mm. That bravery of saying like when you tell a young person that they could do every anything and you stand by them and you watch them do it, you're like, I wish somebody would have told me that, right? right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, I'm saying that now. I have to do that. <laughs> right. Right. So I would say like I've always been a worker bee, but when I found my own voice, I would say, wow, I completely forgot that I did this. Bent Writing it Institute. My specific voice in regards to being a writer and saying my truth, if it's about that artistry. But I feel like I've always, backtracking a little bit, when I think I was a worker bee, I've always been a really big listener, you know? I feel like later on I learned to interrupt people more, mm -hmm. which was hard because I'm still trying to find that balance. That's different than having a voice, but it's just like when you feel like you've been disempowered for so long, you're like, oh, and, 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 you know, like wanting to add. But when I think about my unique voice, and which I'm still scared of, and when you have a writing community, shout out to Tara Hardy who founded Bent Writing Institute. She kind of still calls me to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like a community teacher, community right. educator. And you can see her building. She's like, I want to hear your voice. And you believe her, mm -hmm. you know. And other people like Garfield Hilson, who's always been a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. But it feels scary to have that kind of voice of, like, talk about your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've always had an academic voice, which is like, let me tell you about this unknown history because it's like this history is about me and it's not out there. I know it's not in a book because I had to do a lot of research, mm -hmm. you know, so I definitely feel like that happened when I was like searching out my master's. I was like just had this urge to tell everybody about this knowledge. Later on, it's, it's interesting, through Seattle Young People's Project, they had this training for trainers too. So when I think about myself as a facilitator specifically, so Bent Writing Institute was like me as a poet, but 
um, they were doing this training for trainers. So I was like, how do you become a facilitator? How do you teach youth, right? So that was like Seattle Young People's Project in connection to the Youth and Young Adult Program, at API, which was at API Chaya. And that honed my skill of like reading a room and like learning how to facilitate and facilitate well. Of like, how do you hold hardship? How do you hold trauma in a certain way? And after a while, the only way that you can get better at it is like, continuing to try and fail and like one day you will fail and fail big still regardless of how much skill you have because people are so diverse and it but it also feels good when you can find liberation in a room or people find their own voice and and it's through with facilitation that's not really finding your voice but asking the right questions Mm -hmm. so that other people can be heard then later on when I think about me being a public speaker I was like, okay, I got surprised. People started asking me to do to just tell my life story, and they were like, "I'll give you like five hundred or a thousand dollars." And then I started being asked, like I bet five years ago, to like even go back to WSU and like tell the story, you know, like this orator of like tell the story of like you know why you know why Black Women's Caucus, why is that important here, <laughs> you know, how did YWCA at WSU become what it is or coalition of women students and then when I think of radio specifically when learning about media justice and ladies first specifically mm-hmm. and that connection um and shout out to like Sabrina Roach who brought the term to me but it was like in connection to allied media conference you know where specifically I asked this idea of like being in a room and being able to tell stories with each other it was a whole other way of finding your voice and then all of a sudden i find myself like on buses and in comics and people wanting to hear my opinion about things and that's when my voice got really scary again and i'm like trying to find it i think for me i know some people are very prolific and i'm like oh my god those poets that can say whatever they want and there's moments where i just need to continuously have someone asking me to do my art as a writer and so coming back to that voice that i tried to discover in bent writing institute here in seattle is really important um to me because i feel like i need to get things off of the page and like be more vulnerable and back to the beginning of this conversation is like discovering who i am in connection to fear because i feel like people think that when you become older you become fearless somehow Mm. The only thing that we do is, like, we don't become less afraid. We just learn how to navigate society and cover things up a little bit better. That's real. So, yeah, that was a long answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I like it. I like it. Um, How did you become a writer? And is that what led you into teaching? How did I become a writer? I recently, so I work at Seattle Girls School. I was going to give an assignment. I was taking over for the language arts teacher temporarily, Mm -hmm. you know, as a sub, as a long-term sub, and I had to start journaling. So I looked in my shelves and I found my old journals. So I can answer this question. And I found like my journals from middle school and I didn't have a voice. And I found like I would make lists. I started out with that and the English teacher. And I know that's why I force students to still journal. It's so important. And studies show that just writing, even if when you have no thoughts at all, of just saying, I have no thoughts, I have no thoughts, you know, is important. And to give 
students options but I have these journals from like sixth grade all the way up to high school and I kept them in a binder and I have them in the drawer of my house they've they've come with me all the way from like Spokane to college to here and I looked through them and I like wrote these poems before they started writing you know they started um rhyming I also remember like specific essays. I wouldn't say these out loud because that's not how school was back then. You wouldn't really read your poetry out loud. I can't recall that. Making a story about Greek mythology. And it was specifically, it was about the god. It was like a farting. <laughs> like, like how wind came to be and there's this god farting. <laughs> back to our, yeah. And I was just like, and it just made me smile. Like I remember writing, that was the first time I remember writing being joyful about writing right and it was like it was an important moment later on when i went to college um i continued to write and i'd write these i was just so sad i just kept on writing poetry Mm -hmm. and then i finally said my poem out loud and i was like oh my god this is the longest thing ever and it was something personal and i was like Mm -hmm. oh and the line that i remember that a lot of people liked was like Mm -hmm. i said will i trip back over this colored line Um, And that was in connection to me trying to find a partner and thinking like, well, who will I marry? Will I marry a black person or will I date a black person or will I date a Filipino person? And being really confused about like wanting to build culture and that being through family and like feeling like as the next generation of me or whatever that looked like was going to be diluted. Um, and that bringing me great sadness, like how do I hold so much? And if the next generation, my nephews specifically, and they're like Italian and, and whites, you know, all these different ethnicities and like, is it, how do they carry on all three of those cultures? Can they do that? Mm -hmm. Is that important? Are we going to be assimilated? And it feels like people making judgments over our bodies. Like we've, we were already traitors, you know, Mm -hmm. by being born you know, and their parents were traitors and they, they had already crossed that, that racial barrier that they weren't supposed to cross. So what was our job? So that was, I remember saying that poem out loud at some potluck, you know, some, some random college potluck. When I went into my master's program, I was like, so I realized now I could say this. I was like really traumatized. Like other people would be like intellectualizing some of this. And it was like, I didn't have access. Now people have access to learning about this in middle school or elementary school. And we have a different generation. But I remember it was the first time I was like, I was supposed to be professional in a master's program. And I was, and people were like, being critical in this different intellectual way and people from all over the world and I was sitting there like uh black people were raped like I didn't hear about that you know like it started with that but I was just like in my head I was like oh my god this happened to my people you know like not just that we were slaves but there's other things that happened and I you know I was like did I really have to pay for this now like education is more free but I'm like learning about what happened in slavery in more details, you know, mm. more advanced books. I was like, ugh. And all I could do was write about the pain in poetry form. And my um, master's program, the person, um, my the chair of my master's committee said like, like, yo, she didn't say, <laughs> Linda didn't talk like this. She was like this, this rad queer Chicana person. And, and she was like, you know what? She was like, if that's what you need to ri- just keep writing your poetry. But she had that, she was from that hardcore generation of like coming from LA and other places, like that's a valid voice. And she's like, then you can slap 
the academics around it, but write what you feel. And so I really recall those specific things of like my journey, like I still have those pieces with me, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm still continuing continuing the journey, like you said, of like all the things I mentioned earlier, of like where am I going now? And I feel like even today, before I got here, I'm still asking the same question of like, where is my voice? Am I being honest about my voice? Is it scarier to be as truthful because I'm an adult and I have more to lose, you know, because when you go to Youth Speaks events, you hear the youth, you know, the youth right now, the truth right now, and you're like, they get to spit that truth and you're like, thank God, you know, it's like, will they end up like me or other people where there's too many things to think through in your head before you write something on the page? Like, um, you're like, will I lose my job? Will, you know, who will, who will care? Will, um, this ruin, you know, I'm always thinking in advance of like things end up being economic, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that's not for everybody, but for me, I'm like, I want sometimes <laughs> I stand out already, you know, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. a big girl, so you know, not very typical. So I'm like, I, sometimes I'm like, I, even right now, as I'm trying to talk and explain it, I'm like, it's just hard to put your truth out there fearlessly, right? You right. know, right. how did you become a teacher? My friend called me up. <laughs> well, we need a teacher. I thought I was going to be a teacher. So um, I was really good at writing. Like I told you, I was journaling. So I went to college thinking I was going to be, I was recruited by future teachers of color. Mm. Shout out to Milton Lang, who was my recruiter, right? He was just like, I did not know anything about college. He was the person that told me, like, I called him up and was like, what's financial aid? Mm. I don't even know. You know, that was not a thing. So I was in this program called Future Teachers of Color. Some things happened where didn't have a good experience. I had some racial experiences that just shut me down. Um, and so I never finished my um, teaching degree. And then I went into another. I was like, I was that kid that was in every single program to get me where I need to go. Every single governmental program. Um, so the other program was the Ronald E. McNair program. Oh, shout out to the that was like, scholarship. I was one of the first like prototypes or whatever, like the first cohorts. Wow. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I'm going to become a teacher. I basically applied for that program, got my master's. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a professor. And I was like damn this is really really hard i'm like i'm just gonna take a sojourn into into americorps i'm like man this is not paying a lot of money i have some loans and i'm like all of a sudden i have all these i just jumped into the nonprofit world and i was like i was teaching but it was like grassroots styled so that's how i became a community educator my friend calls me up and was like i'm leaving my position at seattle girls school i'm calling folks and telling them to apply for this position so um shout out to anastasia talbert who's now who was known as miss a and i was like okay i'll apply you know because she wanted to pursue her artwork you know her performance arts so i um applied you know and she had set the foundation the year before for the program it was like the first year that she did it and this the year that i was coming in was the second year I just ended my second year as a performance studies teacher at Seattle Girls School. And reflecting back on my little summer vacation in this moment in July, I was like, "Woo, that was hard. And I still love teaching youth and young adults. And I have this moment where I get to learn something new. And I go back to that. It was like the dream deferred, right? Like Mm -hmm. I was meant to become a teacher and I feel like you know, kind of like the Dixie Chicks. I'm taking the long way around, taking the long road. 
<laughs> Shout out to the Dixie Chicks, yes. you know, who, you know, who are, who are kind of the resistors in, you know, the country scene. Right, right, right. So for the folks that are haters around country, you know, they just performed Daddy's Lessons with Beyonce. Hey. You know, <laughs> you know when the good people start connecting start their genres. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I bet Beyonce like messed those country folks up. Like, yeah, I can do country, you know. Yeah, here it is. With the, Black I'm, folks have yeah, been with the Dixie Chicks, of course. Black folks That's true. That's true. The blues. Blues. That's true. I know. Black folks ever. How do you take care of self-preservation like how do you take care of yourself mentally you know i think it's a day-by-day thing i encourage people to go to counseling um shout out to my counselor i know i've done generative somatics you know which i need to get back to um where you learn like what is your body how does your body respond to traumatic situations and how are you carrying that into you know your meetings and other things your work environment how can you shift that and your body's reaction there's hip-hop you know there's um my nails <laughs> my nails are everything um <laughs> my nails are everything i just love them you know my life is going well when my nails are done when they're not you're like what's going on <laughs> <That's right. laughs> when i'm cooking food and i'm preserving it dancing is great i still dance with my my good one foot my one good foot because uh, my other one is broken my ankle's broken what i said earlier is like when you learn how other people learn i feel like i'm going to be challenged for the rest of my life you know of like continuously like our world is changing more rapidly so that's preserving it's just like by preserving like our education our educational system and asking young people new types of questions that'll preserve all of us yeah no doubt yeah and how can people get connected you can just look up hashtag lulu nation there's one other woman somewhere in africa somewhere her name is lulu too so you'll see the distinction there's one to the lulu in africa i know (laughs) i know i've been running into a lot of people called lulu so just know before it was like me and a bunch of old grandmas. Now this new generation, like people are like mm, Lulu's. I'm like, what? wait a minute, that was unique. No one was Lulu before. At the real Lulu, I, <laughs> met I was like, I know at the uh, at Pride, and I was like, uh, you're Lulu, and they're like, I think I gave them a death look, and I was like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to be nice, but in your old age, you get mean. <laughs> Where can they find me? In the park somewhere being mean? Or, <laughs> or dancing. Or dancing. I'm usually at Coleman Park for the summer, so call me up to on a floaty device. Mm. Yeah, I'm always down for a barbecue. That's how you can find me. Call me and feed me, and you'll be able to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's simple. Yeah. And usury.consulting.productions at gmail.com. Com. So that's Uzuri is U-Z-U-R-I. And then you can find Lulu Nation and the crew on Facebook, on SoundCloud, on Instagram. Nice. Yep. Nice. Well, thank you so Excellent. much. And on the thank side you. of the bus. And, and you. you were one of the strangers, uh, most influential people to know. It I was person of interest. That. Person of interest. <laughs> person of interest. Yes. And then we have two Seattle Weekly comics with E.T. Russian. Uh. 
where she, she outlined some of our talk shows. Okay, so we're gonna well, yeah. there'll be links to all of this in the oh, description. Really? Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's well, so cool. Well, thank you so much. This thank is so you. awesome. Thank you. Yeah.